I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist for Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Towards a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Do you ever find yourself imagining that the forces behind big oil are unstoppable, that little can be done to counter climate change? If so, then how do you cope against what sometimes seems to feel like a din of alarm bells going off? Rising global temperatures, declining Arctic sea ice, ocean acidification, and diminishing biodiversity. Maintaining a degree of optimism against an existential fate like climate change isn't easy. Sure, I mean, there are things we can do. Some may seem small, even singularly inconsequential by themselves, like using a recyclable shopping bag. But there are others Stories we need to share. Proof that change, even if it's incremental, is happening. It's why I'm so excited about this episode. Because what do you do when one of the world's largest oil companies goes against the findings of the global scientific community to ignore the reasonable likelihood of a two degree Celsius climate scenario, even as a planning assumption? What would you do if that company not only resisted talking about its climate adaptation strategy, but refused to allow its directors to engage with investors, including some of the largest pension funds in the world, on climate issues? Well, this is that story of how the church commissioners for England, along with other investors, took on ExxonMobil. It took two years, and there were some initial setbacks, but they finally won. So I want to give a special thanks to Edward Mason for joining me today. Edward is Head of Responsible Investment at the Church Commissioners for England, where he oversees their ethical and responsible investment commitments. Before that, he served as Secretary of the Church of England Ethical Investment Advisory Group, advising the commissioners and other national investing bodies of the church on ethical investment. And prior to that, Edward was a British diplomat for 15 years. Welcome to the show, Edward. It's great to have you here. Thank you. To start out, could you give us a, a bit of background about yourself? Um, what brought you into the world of responsible investment and perhaps some of the initiatives um, outside of Exxon that you've been working on? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess in some ways my career has been a study of, of, of power and influencing on, on public issues. So I was attracted to, to diplomacy by the chance to, to work on major public issues from the perspective of, of governments. And I think over my time in the Foreign Office, I uh, appreciated the power of money uh, as well. And I was quite interested in, in finance, read the pages of, of the FT, but very much from, from an ethical perspective and uh, kind of thinking about the real world impacts of money. Uh, so when I got the chance to, to sort of move over to the role at the, at the Church of England, uh, initially I was secretary to the Church's Ethical Investment Advisory Group. I thought it was a really interesting way to work on a range of, of public issues from the perspective uh, of being a shareholder and to influence uh, the world's problems uh, in, a, in a different way, uh, leveraging the power of money, I guess, rather than, uh, rather than the power of government. Interesting. Well, let's, uh, let's focus in on climate change. I'm really interested in finding out a little bit more about sort of, uh, call it the origin story of, of uh, the commissioner's approach to climate change policy. Um, Looking back, was there a moment when the church recognized, you know, the importance of climate or the environment relative to its social objectives? I'd say the environment has been an important issue for the Church of England uh, for a, for a good many years now. Uh, you know, two or three decades, it's been very much kind of uppermost on the agenda. 
It's also been part of the the church commissioner's ethical investment uh, approach for uh, for quite a while. I mean, we you know we had a an environmental policy and an approach on climate change uh, you know, before I started in in two thousand and nine. But what I've definitely seen uh, over the years I've been involved has been uh, increased attention uh, within the church and also within the investing bodies uh, of the church on climate change. I think there are probably a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is that the issue of climate change becomes more urgent with, with every passing year. Um, this is a situation we need to turn around extremely quickly. Uh, and so concern within the church has, has been rising I think the um, the major summits on climate change have kind of um, you know really drawn public attention to the issue. So the Copenhagen summit, which which didn't work out, the the Paris summit that did. I think one of the manifestations of this uh, increasing uh, interest within the church and, and kind of wider stakeholders has been the divestment movement. Um, that uh, I mean, it's not an approach that that we've followed. We've We've made um, some divestments from fossil fuel producers, so we, we no longer invest in companies that derive more than 10% of their revenues from thermal coal mining or the production of oil from oil sands. But we think it's really important to use our, our shareholder voice as well, which is, which is why we put so much effort mm. into engagement. But I do think that the divestment movement has uh, increased the focus on climate change at asset owners all around the world, really. Interesting. Um, so let's focus on on Exxon. But first, maybe you can set the stage a little bit in terms of, of what was happening before that, particularly um, with your engagements with uh, European and British oil companies like Shell or, or BP um, and some of the work you did on the shareholder engagements. Um, maybe set the scene for us, you know, starting, I think, what, 2012, 2013. Yes, yes, that's right, because there is a, a backstory to this. Um, and it's, it's, it's a European story for us initially. So um, about five years ago, we started working with a group of investors who decided to um, target the largest carbon emitters uh, listed on the UK stock market. So this was uh, companies in the oil and gas sector, uh, the diversified mining sector, and also the electric utilities sector. And we decided to try to model uh, a new form of, uh, of shareholder engagement by institutional investors, one that was uh, more assertive, uh, very long term, but very much kind of pro the long term successes, um, long term success of the businesses. So we um, we started off in in terms of you know, traditional engagement techniques, writing to the to the chairman or chief executive of the company, having private really? meetings. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Was this through something like the principles for responsible investment, or was this uh, outside of you know a a group and more sort of a, a, a real collective of of investors? This was a collective of of like minded investors, and actually to start off with, um, we were. I, uh, you know, uh, values-driven investors really started this off. So um, there were the Church of England national investing bodies. Um, there were kind of church and charity uh, fund managers. Uh, and there was also the local authority pension fund forum. So it was investors that had quite a strong sort of values-based approach to their investments who who started out. But we decided to... Um, to make the, the the engagement and the the focus on climate change more public, uh, so we attended the AGMs uh, of the companies. So a, a, each investor had a had a lead company. Um, so that kind of really uh, sort of brought 
bring climate change more into sort of public focus uh, with the companies raising it in, in public uh, in front of the board. And then the idea was always to culminate in shareholder proposals, but not confrontational ones, not ones that perhaps came from um, an NGO mould or an activist mould, but ones that came from institutional investors to marshal the voice of other institutional investors for climate change as a long-term issue for business that businesses needed to address strategically and to disclose on. Mm. So you effectively established a track record in terms of these kinds of engagements in a European context. Yes. Were there any setbacks? Were there any disappointments, you know, during during those kinds of engagements? Was there anything that didn't work that you had to rethink? Actually, I think if anything, they went better than, than, than we thought they could possibly have done. I think we found that we were, we were onto something here, that there was a role for this new kind of uh, engagement, particularly on an issue like climate change that requires kind of long-term strategic signals from investors. So we found that other investors uh, welcomed our approach, were ready to support it, uh, particularly in the second year when we, we co-filed with mining companies, we, we had a huge uh, array of investors co-filing with this original coalition. Uh, at at Anglo-American, we broke all records for uh, an environmental and so- social shareholder proposal by having more than 5% of the shareholder base co-filing. And these resolutions were supported by shareholders with, with votes of 95 to 98%. And one of the key factors for the success was that the boards of the companies all backed them and recommended them to shareholders. Uh, So they were met with a very positive response by the companies. We had very good dialogue with them um, and they actually welcomed the chance to to get this signal from, from their investors that, yes, climate change was an issue they should be focusing on and they should be disclosing on. Interesting. So as we move into Exxon, um, was this a natural next step or was it the realization that you know we've had some success with a number of companies it's been mainly in a european context can we do something more ambitious you know at the global level and uh and you know against someone like exxon and and try and enlarge the shareholder base i think the issue was really that we perceived a gap opening up between Uh, European-based oil and gas companies and US-based oil and gas companies. So we'd really really had uh, European oil and gas companies at the table on climate change, uh, embracing these resolutions, enhancing their reporting, um, really accepting that it was was vital for them to, to engage with public policy on climate change, the two-degree goal, and that this had uh, material uh, impact for their businesses. We weren't in that same position with with US companies and particularly Exxon and Chevron. So what we decided to do was really to take this successful model from Europe across the Atlantic to partner with major US investors and to see if we could have uh, the same effect in the US uh, and and get uh, the the US oil and gas majors uh, on board uh, in dialogue on climate change as a strategic issue for their businesses uh, and an issue on which they had responsibilities. It must have been a really interesting time because this is 2015. We're going through in November of that year. Uh, you've got uh, uh, the Paris Agreement. I mean, it feels like there's, for the first time uh, since probably Kyoto, but there's actually even more so than Kyoto, but there's a real alignment with a, you know, a 
meaningful goal. Um, but alignment between state actors, between NGOs, between investors. And even then you've got this lack of alignment um, among the US, you know, oil producers. That's exactly right. And and to tackle climate change, we need everyone at the table and we particularly need the world's largest companies in in a sector like oil and gas at the table because and they have tremendous power politically uh, in terms of lobbying, in terms of uh, public policy. And also they, they really set the tone for, for tackling uh, a major issue like this. So we, you know, we, we really couldn't have a situation where uh, they, they weren't uh, on board on the issue. And you're absolutely right about the Paris Agreement, that what it showed was that you know, we need all actors involved. We need everyone to give permission for this collective effort on climate change. And investors and business were very much part of um, indicating to politicians that, yes, this was the right time to take this step and to, and to make this global agreement. Mm. And so how did you find yourself helping to lead the shareholder resolution with some other, I mean, very, very large U.S. pension funds? Was yes. it a natural role that you were able to fill because of your, your prior record or was it... Uh, uh, describe that. How was it? How was it different? Yes, I think I think the track record with with BP and Shell and with the uh, UK based mining companies was was very important. So we'd established a name for ourselves as as climate engagers and as and as a uh, an investor that was using these new techniques in climate engagement. I mean, the Church Commissioners, as as the largest investing body of of the Church of England, are. A pretty unusual investor, so you know we we, we carry uh, we carry the name of the the Church of England, which we seek to deploy um, to issues where where we can have uh, an impact. So we often find in our engagement work that we can create sort of powerful and uh, unusual coalitions. I think the weight of um, an investor with the sort of moral authority of, of the church. And the weight of money from from kind of big mainstream institutional investors creates a sort of very powerful signals. So I think that was really how we we ended up uh, in the in the position that we did on Exxon. We, we have good transatlantic relationships anyway with with U.S. faith investors, with um, the organisation in the U.S. Uh, series who promotes sustainability in business and investment. So it was very much kind of working with them in terms of what would work best in the U.S. scene, how could we contribute um, in, in, in the best way? And that was how we ended up partnering with the New York State Common Retirement Fund, who were the lead filers for the resolution. And then we were the lead co-filers uh, working in partnership. Mm. Why don't you think that there are more, uh, let's say, religious investors, kind of like the commissioners, across Europe fulfilling that role? When I think about uh, the organizations that do a lot of virtue signaling, they tend to be... Um, uh, sovereign wealth funds. I mean, Norges probably most famously has yes. the exclusion list, um, which is incredibly powerful. Um, to, I can think of some um, Scandinavian churches that to a limited de- degree do this, but um, I can't think of many that have been able to kind of reach across the Atlantic and tackle big shareholder issues like this. I think what sets the Church of England apart uh, and, and the Church Commissioners is that we have quite a large central pool of capital. Eight billion pounds is, you know, is a fair amount of money. It's, um, you know, it creates a, a public profile for us, and it means that we can resource responsible investment. And there aren't actually that many large pools of, of faith capital around the world. It's often quite dispersed at different levels of, of church organizations, perhaps at the diocese or a parish or a religious order. 
So the church commissioners are are sort of fairly unusual in that respect. The other kind of large pools of, of church capital are, are in the U.S. Uh, you've got the the Methodist uh, sort of retirement and benefits fund, uh, the Anglican Church in the U.S. as well, and and we work with them. But we've probably got quite a unique global profile, I think, as the Church of England and as the mother church of the the Anglican Church. So. There's probably no one quite like us, really, in uh, in global investment in those terms. And we're trying to use it more actively these days. So let's go back to Exxon. So uh, it's 2015, right? You filed the first resolution and you've worked to get a lot of uh, uh, a lot of other investors committed. And the result is 38 percent which is disappointing in, in some sense, right? Because uh, you didn't win from a, uh, on the resolution. Um, what happened it, it, when you had to reflect on what went right, what went wrong, maybe a change of strategy, other kinds of investors? What what was the uh, what was the reaction to that thirty eight percent? It would have been great to have had the resolution passed uh, in in year one, um, of, of course. But um, you know, I, I I always knew that this would be uh, a longer term. Uh, think uh, you you can't sort of turn uh, turn problems around overnight. So um, I always felt that this process could succeed. Uh, I always felt that we could achieve the same kind of success in the US as we had in Europe. What was different with Exxon was that the board wouldn't engage with us in the way that uh, that BP and Shell and the and the diversified mining companies had. Uh, and also, the board didn't embrace the uh, the request for um, reporting on the implications of uh, of a two degree scenario. So that meant that we were in a in a contested uh, situation, and that and that's a much harder situation than we were in uh, in Europe. And I think that that creates um, a situation that takes time to to play out. So while it would have been great to have got a majority in in year one. It wasn't necessarily surprising, and actually that 38% vote was the highest ever vote for an environmental or social proposal uh, at ExxonMobil. So it was a very significant vote. We had very major investors uh, saying publicly that they they supported it, and it was a great um, platform for the second year. And you know, US voting is, is disclosed. There are regulations about uh, disclosing votes for mutual funds, so that year one gave us a sense of who was on board and, and who wasn't and, and who we needed to work on for year two. Yeah, it's, it's interesting at the board level. How did you reconcile some of the inconsistencies out, coming out of the board? I mean, it sounded like there were non-exec board members who were believers in climate change, certainly you know, had comments in the media um, supporting, it sounded like the Paris Agreement, or at least systemic risks that uh, climate change had. I mean, when we started, Exxon had had very much kind of moved um, quite away on on climate um, under Rex Tillerson. So, the, the company recognised climate change. You know, it's not a climate change uh, denying company. Uh, it also um, recognised that that carbon pricing uh, could play a role in in tackling climate change, and it was it was broadly supportive of of better public policy. But it hadn't uh, explicitly uh, come out uh, supporting uh, the Paris Agreement. So that was one of the, uh, the requests that we made of them uh, in our engagement in, in parallel with the, uh, with the resolution process. And actually, they, they delivered on that um, in, um, in 2016. Uh, 
so when the Paris Agreement came into force, uh, they they put out a pretty uh, supportive statement on that. So they they were shifting on on public policy, but the the, the real issue for investors was that Exxon's position was that a two degree outcome was not plausible, and really after the Paris Agreement, this you know, it's just not an acceptable position for a major public company acting uh, in the oil and gas sector. So that was really um, what the resolution sought to change. As you say, I mean, Exxon has quite an interesting board. Um, the, the non-executives come largely from sort of consumer-focused industries, which are which are kind of very alive to, to their customers uh, and to, to being responsible on climate change. So many, many of those companies actually you know, very clearly support um, the Paris Agreement. They're even signatories to the Paris Pledge to, to sort of back it and, and help bring it about. So yeah, that, that did create uh, something that we could work on. Yeah. Uh, you'd mentioned a uh, little earlier to me about some of the tactics that you had to resort to uh, in terms of, of getting the message out. Uh, can you talk about some of them uh, at the AGM in terms of uh, the uh, calling out board members? Well, this was, this was a proxy fight and Exxon fought hard and, and we fought hard. That's what, that's what happens in, in proxy fights. Uh, so Exxon put additional filings in uh, to the SEC that, that went out to, to shareholders with, with their position. Uh, we obviously advocated our position privately to, to other large shareholders uh, in public in the press. Uh, we had to use um, you know, all, the, all the influencing techniques really at our disposal. And because Exxon doesn't allow investors to, to meet its board, the only chance that you get to do that is actually by attending the AGM and speaking. So I, I did that um, both years, both in, in 2016 and in 2017. And I felt in 2017 it was important to call out uh, these different positions on climate change that members of the board were taking uh, in their other roles and then on their roles uh, on the Exxon board. Uh, you know, they can't be split personalities on climate, say one thing in one context and, and another uh, in their context as Exxon board directors. How, I wanted to make them think. Yeah. How was it received? What was the reaction doing it? Was it uh, did you feel like there was uh, some recognition of this sort of inconsistency or, or was it hard to read? Well, all, all we can go on, I guess, is is the result. So, I mean, the, the vote the vote got got sixty two percent support. So, Exxon's policy when a shareholder proposal gets majority support is that it should go back to the board for for reconsideration. And Exxon said to us pretty early on that they would uh, they would implement uh, the shareholder proposal or or they would respond to it um, in a substantive way. They would they would take it uh, seriously. So. I hope that the the comments I made at the AGM uh, helped the board uh, take a constructive response uh, to the resolution. Um, the, the the internal goings on of a of a of a board, are, you know, are not not really uh, very very transparent or, or sort of open to the public. So one you know one really doesn't know. But um, the response the response has been has been serious from the company, and in um, in in February they published their their first ever detailed report on climate change uh, and the implications of, of two-degree scenario outcomes for their business, assets that could potentially become stranded in a two-degree scenario. So this would be uh, things like Canadian oil sand uh, assets. Um, so we we achieved our, our initial 
objective of, of um, getting Exxon to the table, taking the Paris Agreement um, seriously and analysing its implications for the business. But clearly there's a lot more to do. Yeah, but but I just want to go back to that one point. I mean, going from 38% to 64 or 62% is a huge move. And I say that because, you know, within that 38%, there's already a lot of sort of self-selection. Looking back, was there something that really worked that made that happen to go from 38 to 62 Times are changing on on climate change uh, in the in the investment world. So you have the likes of, of BlackRock saying for a number of years that climate change is an investment risk. You have major investment consultants like Mercer saying the same. You have the governor of the Bank of England saying this. So we were working in a propitious environment, uh, you know, against which uh, investor views on climate, its materiality, and and, and their need to be active on it uh, have been changing. As I say, we we knew um, who'd supported in, in year one and, and who hadn't. We had you know, very important supporters in year one uh, to get that 38% uh, vote. So, you know, State Street, for example, supported the resolution uh, in year one, one of the largest US passive managers. But we knew that if we, uh, if we, if we sort of turned the voting of, of the other big US managers, particularly those um, in the passive space, the likes of BlackRock uh, and Vanguard, also large managers like you know, Fidelity, JP Morgan Asset Management, that we would be able to, to take the vote over the line. And th- these managers do take climate change seriously. Obviously, you know, we, as asset owners, we, we kind of talk to these, to these asset managers. The fact that, that Exxon uh, doesn't allow shareholder access to, to its board, um, I think was already... Uh, irritating some some major players. So BlackRock was known to have voted against two non-executive directors in 2016. So, as I say, the the environment the environment was good. Um, the principles for responsible investment making a, a lot of headway uh, with with big uh, big asset managers. So we were working in an environment that uh, that gave us an opportunity, and that's really why we did it, and why we why we used the Church of England's. Um, uh, sort of profile in this way, we you know we we like to to push the industry forward on responsible investment, so that investors can be part of tackling the world's major problems, and they don't come much bigger than climate change. Yeah. Did the proxy voting services, companies like ISS, did they play much of a role in this? Because generally, the proxy voting you tend to uh, a lot of passive firms tend to vote alongside their recommendations generally, which reflect the management's recommendations, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's a bit unfair maybe on the big passive managers because they have quite well-resourced stewardship teams now. And, uh, you know, I think they they, um, they come to their own decisions. But the, the proxy voting agencies are, are certainly important. I think perhaps with uh, with smaller investors who don't have the resources to, to go through uh, individual votes the, the same way as, as, as better-resourced investors. So yeah, clearly we wouldn't want a situation where the proxy voting agencies were recommending a vote against. But again, they, they've been on the journey. They, I mean, they've been handling environmental and social shareholder proposals for many years. But what's been happening more recently has been that they've been getting more backing from institutional investors and the proxy voting agencies have recognised that. They're recognising, like so many others in the investment industry, the materiality of environmental, social and, and governance issues. So their voting recommendations were already changing. 
uh, and they they recommended for the resolution in in year one, which really helped establish its credibility uh, as well. But I I wouldn't overplay the role of the proxy voting agencies. It's very easy for a company mm. to say, oh well, that was just the proxy voting agencies, uh, and and that emphatically was not the case in this instance. The proxy voting agencies were reflecting the wider shift of opinion in the in the investment world. Mm. Got it. So what would you say the learnings from the Exxon experience are? Um, what would you tell investors who are looking to play a greater role around their stewardship activities? Um, what could they learn from, from your experience? This whole, this whole period has been a tremendous learning experience because we'd never filed a shareholder proposal before we, we did at BP and Shell uh, back, in, back in 2014. And institutional investors have typically not used them. And we were, we were perhaps a bit sceptical as well about the kind of role they could play. But we are utterly convinced now that shareholder proposals are very much a tool uh, that institutional investors uh, should use, can use, and that they can drive uh, meaningful change and very meaningful signalling uh, from investors. I think um, the other main lesson is the power of coalitions uh, working together. Um, as I say, you know, we had very significant numbers of investors co-filing these resolutions. For Exxon in, in year two, we had over 50 co-filers representing over $5 trillion of, of assets under management. So when investors work together, uh, they can really have an impact. And I'm very excited about Climate Action 100+, Plus, which is the the latest global investment initiative on climate change that will really seek to um, to take climate engagement to the next level by uh, using powerful coalitions. Yeah, it's, it's actually worth describing what that does just for maybe, you know, a little bit in terms of reaching out to the top 100 emitters, right? And yes, exactly. So uh, it actually arose from CalPERS, the, the, the major, well, the largest public pension fund in the US, looking at where uh, enlisted companies most of the the emissions uh, associated with their portfolio lay and they and they found that the the top 100 uh, represented uh, a, a very significant proportion and the majority of emissions associated with their portfolio so the idea is for investors to work together globally to uh, engage with these sy systemically important uh, emitters so the principles for responsible investment are involved the um, uh, regional uh, investor networks on climate change are involved. And there are investors, uh, I think, with over $20 trillion now of assets under management signed up. Uh, so this is going to be a really, really powerful new engagement movement. And it's on the back of the Paris Agreement. So it's, it's asking for corporate alignment with the Paris Agreement. And it's also on the back of the uh, Financial Stability Board's task force on climate-related financial disclosures, uh, which has produced... Uh, very significant recommendations for corporate reporting, which again, Climate Action 100 Plus engagers will be advocating. Yeah, no, it's actually a great point to make. Sometimes it's a bit disheartening to sort of look at what's happened over the last probably 12 months with uh, Trump making good on his threat to exit the Paris Agreement, uh, making good on his threat to deregulate energy within the U.S. Um, as he's dismantling the clean power plant, a number of other things within Obama's environmental legacy. But it's important to point out that there are a lot of forces that are trying to keep those controls in place and even reinforce them, you know, against the threat of climate change. 
Clearly, I mean, it's disappointing to ha- to have the the U.S. government uh, looking at withdrawing from the Paris Agreement and taking all these step backs. Um, and it would be so much better if they were at the table. But actually, I think the response from business, investors, states has been tremendous to to the announcement that, that President Trump made. I don't think it could have been better. Non-state actors were always going to be huge in in tackling the problem of climate change. This is a problem that we all need to to be active on. And I think, if anything, uh, the position of the of the U.S. federal government has has sort of spurred everyone else uh, into action. And there's going to be a very significant summit in in California uh, in September, convened by by Governor Brown. Uh, investors and business uh, will be will be present at that. So, uh, climate action carries on uh, with or without the Trump administration because climate change carries on with or without them. That's great. It's actually, it's fantastic to sort of end on a very optimistic point uh, note. So look, it's been fascinating to hear about how the church commissioners have played such a large unifying role in coalescing institutional investors to address climate change issues. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Mann Group, here today with Edward Mason, Head of Responsible Investment at the Church Commissioners for England. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks, Edward. Thank you. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell, Sustainability Strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.